Matthew tells, Matthew kind of has a, <clears throat> a rhythm, a way of writing, okay? Matthew tells a series of stories, and then he draws a conclusion. He's been doing that for the last couple of chapters. Uh, you don't really know why he's telling these stories until he tells you his conclusion of, so he's all these stories, and here's why he's telling us. Does that make sense? I'm just going to pretend that it does. Uh, so I cannot overemphasize, I cannot overemphasize, <clears throat> I cannot overemphasize, well, I was making a joke and now I can't say it. Emphasize, read my mind. I cannot overemphasize how we have to be careful as we look at Matthew's gospel that we don't short circuit the process, extract the story from the overall context, and then draw our own conclusions. We have a bad habit of doing that with the gospels because they're, they're a narrative that's written as a didactic. It's a story that's teaching a lesson, so it's always building toward a point so whenever we take, when we extract the story out and just say, well, this is what it means, it's kind of like opening up, going to the library and buying a narrative or renting a narrative book and turning to chapter 10 and going to the sixth paragraph and reading it. And now I know what it's talking about. No, you don't. No, you don't. So don't do that with scripture. Uh, when the author of the Bible, when the author of the book here has presented his conclusion, that is the conclusion. We don't get to make up our own conclusion. You okay? I want to read scripture and it just means whatever it means to me, Brent. No, it doesn't. The words have meaning and grammar is still grammar. And whenever the author says this is the conclusion, then that is the conclusion. You don't get to argue with scripture. Can you tell I'm kind of on a soapbox? So here in Matthew 9, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 38. I know I haven't covered 20 verses in the last six months, and this morning we're going to do 20 verses uh, before lunchtime. Uh, we have another series. So we're headed to Matthew 18, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. We have another series of stories that Matthew has daisy-chained together to make a point. And here is Matthew's point. Matthew's point in these stories is the compassionate Christ. If there's anything you're going to leave from this message this morning, if there's anything that you're going to take from this text here in Matthew 18, chapter 9, verses 18 through 38, you need to leave here and know that Christ is incredibly compassionate. Some of you are going to get in the car and say, well, but there was also, no, no. You need to know that Christ is a very compassionate God. Matthew has spent the previous chapters 8 and 9 establishing Jesus' authority, his authority over nature, over the supernatural, over physical healing, over the penalty of sin. And now Matthew tells us a series of stories demonstrating Jesus' compassionate use of that authority. So he has all of this power. He has all of this authority. What does he use it for? He brings it to humanity to compassionately minister to people, okay? Now, we could stop there. Here we go. Number one, a desperate dad. That's a great word picture. I love that. A desperate dad. Matthew 9, verse 18. 
Hopefully you're in, your, in the text with me. Here we go. As Jesus was saying this, he's referring to what uh, Matthew was talking previously about. He's talking about the old and the new cloth and the old wineskins and the new wineskins. You can't put old wine, you can't put new wine in old wineskins because they'll break. As Jesus was saying this, the leader of the synagogue, got that in your brain? <clears throat> Came and knelt before him. So while Jesus is speaking, the leader of the synagogue came and knelt before Jesus. <clears throat> My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. So this is not some random Roman Gentile that has come to Jesus. This man was most likely Israelite by birth, Jewish by religion. He was a leader of the Jewish synagogue, possibly a man who had criticized Jesus previously. But now, with the death of his daughter, he is reduced to a desperate dad. His daughter lays lifeless, and he is at the end of his resources the doctors were not able to save her. There she laid, still on her bed. There is no one else to turn to for help. He had heard the stories of Jesus healing people, at least healing living people. Up to this point, Jesus had not raised anyone from the dead. But maybe, just maybe, in humble reverence, forgetting who he was and who was watching, a desperate dad kneels before the Christ. My daughter has just died, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. I'm sure that he knew that what he was asking was impossible it's actually a little crazy. Will you, if you'll come to my house and touch my dead daughter, she'll, she'll come back to life and everything will be back to good. Touching a dead body was considered the most defiling kind of uncleanliness by the Levitical law. Most religious leaders and teachers would have refused to come anywhere near a dead person. And he comes and is asking Jesus to come and touch the hand of his dead daughter. He's asking Jesus to come and bring life back into his daughter who has died. This is the behavior of a desperate man. If your child has ever been sick, you have an idea of the helplessness that this man was feeling. Now, Matthew doesn't record Jesus's verbal response. I assume that there was some sort of verbal response, but Jesus, here Matthew doesn't tell us how, what he says, uh, just that Jesus and his disciples, they got up and they went with this father, presumably to this man's house, uh, where his deceased daughter is, and the story gets interrupted. Number two, now you're gonna wonder, oh no, what's gonna happen? Number two, a desperate woman. A desperate dad, a desperate woman. Verse 20. Just then, as they're en route to the Jewish synagogue leader, 
uh, house. Uh, just then a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up behind him. 12 years. I'm good for about two days of being sick and then I want to, you know, hang myself or something. I don't know. I just don't like being sick. 12 years. She comes up behind him. Are you picturing this? She touched the fringe of his robe. I love the New Living Translation. Just got it right there. She touched the fringe of his robe for she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Now, for Jews who would be reading this or watching this story unfold, this event, uh, there's a common thread of ceremonial uncleanliness in all of these stories. These are outcasts from the synagogue. They shouldn't be around the temple or the synagogue. Jesus is on his way to touch a dead girl, which would make him unclean according to the Levitical law. A woman having her period was considered unclean for seven days, and anyone who came in contact with her was unclean until that evening in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 19 and the following. This woman has been ceremonially unclean for 12 years. Now, there's a whole lot to being ceremonially unclean. That's a study for another day. She was a social and religious outcast. She had tried all the medicines. She had gone to all the doctors. She has nowhere else to turn and she can't go to the synagogue or to the temple because she's unclean. So she has to stay away from all of those who would share her faith. Out of desperation, she boldly seeks to come close to Jesus, just close. Not so close that she would touch his skin. She wouldn't think of that. But if she can just touch the threads that hang from the bottom of his robe. She doesn't want to draw attention to herself. She doesn't want anybody to notice her. She doesn't even want Jesus to know because that would put him at risk of being unclean, desperate, and helpless. She reached out and she touched the fringe of his robe. Suspenseful, isn't it? <laughs> Finally, those that weren't paying attention are like, wait, wait, what happened? What happened? She, she touched it. What happened after she touched him? Finish the story. Now we have two stories in limbo. Yeah. Verse 22. Jesus turned around. She touched the fringe of his garment. Jesus turned around. And when he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. Poof. Oh. I know, yeah, it's pretty good, pretty good story. She got healed, okay. A dirty woman touched 
Jesus. Are you getting the picture? The dirty woman, not, she was, she was sick. She was, for religious purposes, she was unclean. The dirty woman touched Jesus, the holy son of God. Do you see the contrast there? Jesus doesn't get angry or defensive about it. In fact, he encourages her. He affirms her faith. There's an incredible spiritual and theological principle here. I'm going to hit it and run. But here it is in a very blue-collar way of putting it. This story illustrates how your dirt doesn't rub off on Jesus. But all that Jesus is will rub off on you. That's good. And from that moment, she was healed. Then the story goes back to the leader of the synagogue and his daughter, number three, a desperate daughter. I told Thomas that I was going to preach 20 verses this week and 17 pages, and he's like, oh my goodness. We're doing good. A desperate daughter. So we had a desperate dad. Now we have a desperate daughter. Remember, they're on their way to uh, this man's house when the bleeding woman touched Jesus' robe. That gets us to verse 23. When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Now, part of a custom was that uh, when someone died, they would... Uh, family, friends, and they would even hire people who, to be mourners. And so they would go and they would play sad funeral music. And the mourners would cry real loud. And it was just a lot of really, a lot of ruckus. Our culture would see it as ruckus. Um, to them, it was their, their desperate grieving. It was them being very emotional. Uh, they've lost their daughter. So, I mean, I, I understand the point, but... But you got to get the idea. He saw the noisy crowd and he heard the funeral music. And this is Jesus in all of his kindness. Verse 24, he arrives on the scene and he says, get out. <laughs> so many times I've arrived home and just, <laughs> get out. No, I'm kidding. Get out, he told them. And then he says, the girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd, these are professional funeral mourners. They know when someone's dead. They've seen dead people before. But the crowd laughed at him. After the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand. And she stood up. The report of this miracle swept throughout the entire, through the entire countryside. Jesus doesn't, whenever he gets there, he doesn't need a crowd of onlookers. He doesn't want a bunch of spectators. He goes into the house where the girl lays lifeless. And with all the eyes of her family, and I believe his disciples were there, they're all watching to see, is he really going to touch this dead little girl? Jesus reaches down and he takes her hand. But instead of death defiling him, Jesus defiles death. And life returned and the little girl stood up. 
And then he says, and the news of Jesus raising a little girl from the dead to life couldn't have traveled faster. It spread all over. Can you imagine? They come out of the house. These professional mourners are standing outside of the doorway, and the little girl comes walking out on the porch, and the mourners are like, well, I guess we were wrong on this one. And they tell everybody about how Jesus has raised this girl from the dead. Now, we're headed into the next two stories. And before we get there, I want to read from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, because it's an Old Testament messianic prophecy that you need to just kind of have it in your mind as we go through the next two stories. So... Uh, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, it says, And when he comes, he's talking about the Christ, when the Messiah comes, when Christ comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. Guess what our next story is going to be about? And unplug the ears of the deaf, and the lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. He will open the eyes of the blind and those who cannot speak will sing for joy is the part that I want you to see was prophesied back by Isaiah. Okay, now, now, here's, we're back to Matthew. Number four in your notes. Two desperate blind men. Verse 27 After Jesus left the girl's home, so he's just raised this girl from the dead, he leaves the house, he's headed down the road, two blind men followed along behind him shouting, son of David, that's significant, have mercy on us. I don't know why every time we come across this in scripture of blind people crying out to Jesus to have mercy on them, To me, that is just an incredibly emotional scene. Son of David, have mercy on us. They went right into the house where he was staying. I find that a little bit humorous. And Jesus asked them, would you like to leave? No, he didn't. (laughs) He didn't. That was was Brent's. That's what Brent would do. (laughs) No, they went into the house where he was staying and Jesus asked them, do you believe I can make you see? Yes, Lord, they told him, we do. Makes you wonder what's going to happen, doesn't it? Two blind men relegated to the fringe of society. There was no government programs to help them with housing or food. They beg for spare change and for scraps of food. They are marginalized and they are tolerated. Yet these two men see what others did not. They recognize that Jesus is the royal son of King David. They saw that this man named Jesus, this is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. The prophet Isaiah said that Christ would give sight to the blind. 
crying out for mercy from the Messiah. They follow Jesus into the house. Jesus doesn't have Peter, James, and John. You know they would have been the bouncers because they were fishermen. They were tough guys. He doesn't have Peter, James, and John throw these two guys out. Could have, but they didn't. Jesus invites them in. Do you believe I can make you see? And they say, you're the Christ. It was prophesied by Isaiah that you can make blind eyes see. So yes, you're the son, the royal son of David. So yes, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You just raised this little girl from the dead. We didn't see it, but we could hear all the the joy. We we heard the funeral song change to a song of praise. Something happened. So yeah, yeah, Jesus, we believe that you can give us sight. Verse 29, he touched their eyes and said, because of your faith, it will happen. Then their eyes were opened and they could see. Jesus sternly warned them, because he does this all the time, right? Nobody ever listens. Jesus sternly warned them, don't tell anyone about this. But instead, they went out and spread his fame all over the region. Jesus had compassion on these two men, touched their eyes and healed them. They had no other hope in society. There was no one else to help them. They asked for mercy from the Messiah. And without hesitation, Jesus healed them. He's a compassionate Christ. Number five, a desperate demon-possessed man. A desperate demon-possessed man. When they left... A demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus cast the demon out, and then the man began to speak. Boy, Matthew makes that one much more concise, doesn't he? I think it's difficult for us to be objective about this poor guy. I mean, I was raised in church, and so, so yeah, I'm, maybe I'm speaking from my own point of view it's difficult for me to be objective about this guy because we hear that, that he is demon-possessed and we have this knee-jerk reaction that he is somehow responsible for being demon-possessed. I mean, I was raised in a church where someone you suspected was demon-possessed. Well, did they go to the Star Wars movie? You think I'm joking? I'm not. Did they, did they have a Ouija board at their house? Or did they, I mean, we have, we have all these speculations as to what did they do? They did something, and that's why they're demon-possessed. So we don't want to be around people that are demon-possessed. We're going to stay a long way away from people that are demon-possessed. Because they might get you, Right? I mean, we're coming up on Halloween. This is whenever all the streaming services have all the scary movies on. And, you know, there's somebody's demon-possessed all the time. And they're going to get you! <laughs> I scared some of you. That was fun. <laughs> this man was brought to Jesus. He was not in control of his body enough to get to Jesus on his own. I believe that he had the physical capability of speech... 
But the spiritual being inside of him subdues his ability and holds his tongue silently hostage. Evidently, those around him saw his desperation. They saw that this man needed supernatural help. Help that they could not get him, but they knew who could. So they brought him to Jesus. Matthew doesn't give us a lot of details in the story. They brought him, Jesus cast the demon out, and the man began to speak. And that's it. So look at what happens in the second part of uh, verse 33 and then verse 34. I divided those on the slides for good purposes. The crowds were amazed. This is what they said. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, they exclaimed. But, here's the contrast. The Pharisees said, he can cast out demons because he's empowered by the prince of demons. So the crowds are watching all this happen and they say nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. Now, they had seen the crowds speaking generally. They had seen Jesus cast out demons before. So I don't think that that is what they're referring to. I don't think they're talking about the casting out of demons. We'll see it more clearly in the next few verses, but I'm pretty sure that what they had never seen in Israel was a spiritual leader who showed real compassion for desperate people. I just need you to absorb that for a second. These were religious people. They had been around a lot of religions. What they had never seen in Israel before was a spiritual leader who showed real compassion for desperate people. The man who shows all the signs of being the Christ, the very son of the living God, the man who raised to life the daughter of his antagonist. He heals the woman who was unclean. He gives sight to two poverty-stricken blind men. He sets a demon man free so that he can speak again. Like no other before him, Jesus shows compassion to those who are helpless, hopeless, and desperate. Jesus cares for and ministers to the needs of those who were normally ignored. Nothing like this had ever happened in Israel. But the Pharisees, they dismissed Jesus's compassion and his power as demonic. He must have power over the demons because he is the prince of demons. It would look bad on the Pharisees to discover that their Jewish Messiah was concerned for the well-being of the unclean people. It would be embarrassing for the Christ to come to the sick and broken people out in the villages instead of coming to the priests and the religious people in the temple. So they dismiss him. He's not compassionate. He's the prince of demons. Verse 6, or number 6. Here's Matthew's conclusion. This is where we've been headed, okay? Number 6, a desperate, confused and helpless people. 
I always get all excited in scripture whenever he's, the scripture is drawing this picture of, of humanity being desperate, confused, and helpless, and then Christ the Savior. Because I think that our modern perspective of humanity is, I am smart enough to do this myself. And God is a great accessory to my greatness. And that's not in scripture. That's not a biblical perspective at all. When we read the scriptures, we have the Pharisees who are as lost as they can be. And then we have the people who are desperate to come to Jesus because they have nothing. That's good. Here we go, verse 35. Picture this, watch what's happening. So he's kind of summarizing what what has happened. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like like sheep without a shepherd. There's the conclusion. That's what Matthew has been getting us to. I want you to listen very carefully for a minute. We have extracted these stories from the context of the Gospel of Matthew, telling about who Jesus is. And we have drawn conclusions about faith, about healing, even about exorcisms. We have gone to these passages looking for a formula for manipulating God to do what we want him to do. You okay? But Matthew wrote these stories so that you and I would have the opportunity to learn about Jesus. Specifically, that you and I would learn that the Christ comes full of compassion for you. We want to, he wants to minister to people and Christ Jesus has all power and all authority to minister to you. We pull these stories out and we say, well, if, if we have faith like the woman with the issue of blood or, or if we are demon possessed or if we kneel down like the first guy, if we stand up like the third guy, if we, if we figure out the formula, then God will give us what we want. And all God wants is for us to run to him with, in self-abandonment and say, I have nothing, I only need you. Amen, Brent, that's good preaching. Yes, hallelujah. This is a whole different perspective of Christianity. We're not trying to get Jesus to do things for us. Jesus, by his divine nature, is a compassionate God. He is willing and able to give and to do what is best. There's my qualifier. He is willing and he is able to do what is eternally best for those who come and surrender themselves to him. See, we come asking for what we want. And he says, yeah, but that's not what's good for you. 
there's a difference. It's the parents in the candy shop where the kids want all the candy and parents say no because that's not what's best for them. I mean, we can figure that out with our kids, but then whenever it comes to our relationship with God, we will stamp our feet and shake our fist at God and say, you are a healer. Why don't you heal me? Why don't you heal my loved ones? And God says, I just want you to desperately come to me and then we'll figure it out after that. How about that? You okay? It's been great being your pastor here at Desert Heights. We tend to think of ourselves as being intelligent and competent people. We don't really need a compassionate Christ. Do you follow what I just said? I've got this figured out. I was raised in church. I know how to pray. I know I need to come to church so many times and I need to pray in the King James Version to make it more powerful or whatever. Uh, I need to do these things to play the part so that I can get God to bless me. And that's not accurate. We don't, modern Christianity, our modern perspective of Christianity does not need a compassionate Christ because we're the DIY Christianity. Yet in these stories, Jesus had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I think that yeah, I have to look at my watch to see if I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that most of us come to a point in our faith, in our lives, where we're at the end of our rope. And we say, okay, God, I have tried. I've tried everything that I know. I've been doing my soap. I've been praying regularly. I go to church. I've been not swearing at people in the church parking lot because Brent told us not to. I'm doing all these things that are right. And God, it's not, it's not working. I'm, I'm giving. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get you to do what I want. And it's not working anymore. And now life has crashed in on me. And I have nothing left. And you know, that if you've heard it before, when you come to the end of your rope, you've heard it said, tie a knot and hang on. And I say, let go. Let go. Just let go. Let go and say, God, I have nothing. I only have you. So God, if you do not catch me, I will fall. God, I desperately need you. Here's... Oh, we still have more text. We got to move forward. Instead of worrying about what we know we want, instead of worrying about what we know we want, we should concern ourselves with who it is we need. We need to come to the conclusion that we desperately need a compassionate Christ. Now, it's in this moment of compassion for humanity that Jesus says in Matthew 39, 37, he says to his disciples, the harvest is great. Now, keep in mind, we're in the context of Jesus's compassion. He's, he's done ministry from village to village and he's healed all kinds of diseases. And then he looks at them and he says, they're, they're lost and they're helpless and they're like a sheep without a shepherd. And then he says, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send 
more workers into the field. And we always extract that out and use it for preaching about get involved in ministry. But we miss the context of Jesus' compassion. He's not saying, hey, here's what you need to do. No. He's looking at those who need ministry from God the Father. And he's saying there's so many people who need to be touched by God. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send more people into the harvest field. Listen, church. Jesus the Christ says, the harvest field is great, but the workers are few. Jesus is recognizing that this is a task so big that even Jesus will need to recruit some people to help. That and Jesus is not always going to be here on earth, so this is going to perpetuate. Got to send some workers into the field. So pray to the Lord of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his field. Christ Jesus has modeled compassion for desperate people. Yet there are still desperate people. We live in a world of desperate people. Many that are confused and they don't know who they need. So we can treat them like the demon-possessed person. Stay away. Or we can have compassion on them like Jesus because we know who they need. As followers of Christ, we have the honor of telling others about our compassionate Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have the privilege of sharing the compassion of Jesus with those who desperately need him. I think that sometimes... We see people who have different faith than we do or just don't share our faith. And we want to push them away because they make us uncomfortable. And we'll watch them flail around in life and hit their head on every blocked door and bang on every window and they can't and they don't and we stand back and we watch. My prayer is that the compassion of God in us will reach out to them and say, I know who you need to know who can help you. I know the compassionate Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's us. As followers of Christ, we're the ones who carry the torch. We have the beacon of light, so to speak. It's our job to go into the harvest field and share a little light with those that are hopeless and desperate. 